Please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to the Gospel according to John, chapter 19. Our sermon text will be in verses 25 through 27. We come to meditate as we have prayed on the Lord's suffering for us before communion, that we would partake of these tokens of his body and blood with faith and understanding, coming to know what it is that the Lord's death portends to us. So in view of that, let us hear again the word of the living God. John 19, verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. May God bless his word to us. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to a text where we find the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of his misery. We see Christ procuring our salvation, showing his love and compassion, keeping and honoring the law and the commandment of promise. Honor thy father and mother. And we pray, O Lord, that he that was cut off so soon in this earth may be honored that he may give us long life, eternal life in heaven. And we pray, O God, that the preaching of the word would be blessed to these ends, that we would see the excellencies of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Bless thy minister who will preach to this people. He pleads for the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And we pray as well for the hearts of those here, especially those preparing to commune, especially those who are moved to make a profession of faith and yet may have stumbled and and have been hesitant up to this point. May they see the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of the word. And may they embrace this gracious Savior. And so, Father, to these holy ends, Help us to behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our communion sermons, in our recent communion series, we have been considering the seven sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ on his cross. Seven sayings, as you know, the number of completeness are recorded. There are these seven sayings recorded in the Gospels of what our Lord Jesus Christ said on his cross from the time he was crucified to the time in which he gave up the ghost. Let me remind you of them, especially the first two that we have considered as a congregation. The first word is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke twenty-three thirty-four. In that first saying, we saw Christ's heart of forgiveness. Even in his great agony, He prayed for those who crucified him that they may be forgiven. So all sinners in that very first word on the cross see their warrant to come to Christ for forgiveness, that he is willing to forgive even those who crucified him to the tree. The second saying is, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. He said that to the thief next to him on the cross. In that second saying, not only do we see that Christ has the heart to forgive the chief of sinners, we see that he does in fact forgive the chief of sinners. All sinners who come to him, whatever kind of sinner they are, will, he will in no wise cast out. He will accept them if they will come to him in faith. He promised that crucified thief that he would be saved. So we hear in the second word, don't we, that salvation is entirely of the Lord as well. No works are committed to the Lord that are efficacious towards salvation, that merit salvation. A thief who could do nothing but plead for mercy 
receives salvation. The second saying also showed us the beauty of salvation. What is salvation defined by? Thou shalt be with me. Thou shalt be with Christ. And that's salvation to us, being with him forever. The third saying is in our text, verses 25 through 26. Woman, behold thy son, and to his disciple, behold thy mother. The fourth saying, the central saying, the one that you probably know quite well, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. And it is the center of these seven sayings. And so we find our attention affixed to it, especially uh, next communion, Lord willing. Fifth, he said, I thirst. John 19, 28. Sixth, it is finished. John 19, 30. Seventh, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. These are the seven sayings of the Savior on his cross. They're a window into our Redeemer's heart, for sure, that show his majesty even in the midst of his misery. They proclaim the fullness of our redemption accomplished in the Son of God, that all sinners must do is receive him by faith to receive a full salvation with nothing left in us to contribute to it. These form truly great meditations for our heart in the time in which we have need of assurance especially or have a need to look on the Lord Jesus Christ with incredible and extraordinary affection that will lead us to worship him as you consider what he suffered and and his heart that is laid open on the tree. Well, today our meditation is on the third saying of our Savior. Woman, behold thy son, and to the disciple behold thy mother. This third saying of the Redeemer really is the capstone of the perfection of his life. This truly shows us the perfection of his life, his keeping of the law of God from the heart to its uttermost. Here you find Christ's active obedience for sinners. Because to be saved, not only does a sinner need their sins washed away by Christ's blood, but a sinner needs a perfect righteousness to have kept the law perfectly, positively. Without it, you and I would be lost. Even if our sins were washed away, God demands of us perfect obedience to the law of God, to have kept in the fullness from the heart the entirety of the law of God. That's our problem, isn't it? We have not obeyed the precepts of the moral law. But here in the third saying, we find met on the cross the wonder of 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You find on the cross here, not only Christ dying for our sins, but also uh, completing a perfect righteousness that he gives to those who have faith in him. Here on the cross, then, the redeemed find a record of their own righteousness, Christ's, given to us. When you put your faith in him, his moral perfection imputed or credited to you. God crediting this moral perfection of Christ to keep the fifth commandment even to its uttermost, even in misery. He imputes that, he credits it to you. What a glorious thing that is when we sin, but we also come so short of the law of God and we wonder about it and our standing with God. Here you find moral perfection imputed to the sinner who comes to Christ. So all of our failings, children of God, every single one finds redemption in the Redeemer. Truly something to glorify Christ for and rejoice in before we partake of the communion. So let's consider this third saying under three meditations. First, Christ's sight of his mother. Second, Christ's keeping of the law. Third, uh, Christ's loss of all comfort. So first, Christ's sight of his mother. In verse 25, we have read, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother. Here in Christ's agony, it is Mary who stood by the cross of her son, along with two others, uh, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. You remember, I trust, that at this point 
all of his disciples had abandoned the Savior. But here are these three faithful women come to him. Surely this was the work of God's grace to draw them to the Redeemer in this time. You know, I'll just say for an encouragement to you ladies, many of Christ's most devoted disciples were women. And you see that here at the cross, don't you? Great sinners these women were, and they, having found a great Redeemer as that sinful woman we considered in Luke 7, they're drawn to him, drawn to their Redeemer who had forgiven them of so much. And you almost ask, where are the men, right? Where are the men? It's often a chastisement on us men that we are not so near Christ as the women are at times, even though we men are called to be spiritual leaders. But women, see here how the Lord honors these women in Scripture and how he honors you as well if you are uh, honoring the Lord. You know, these women, they're not preachers, they're not elders, and yet Christ loves them and Christ honors them. And he honors them in the word for their faithfulness. And he honors you as well. There's no need for you to be a minister. There's no need for you to be an elder in order to be honored by the Lord. Ladies, watch these, your mothers in the faith. But I especially want to focus now on Mary, the mother of our Lord. And I want to begin with her side of her son, that we might meditate upon the sufferings of our Lord through her eyes to know, yes, her grief, even to make her grief our grief, and to see what her sin and our sin have cost her son. That we ourselves may be wounded in the heart, that our soul may be pierced as Mary's was, as we look upon the Redeemer and what our sin has done to him. So as she stood before that cruel Roman cross, you think of what might have gone through this mother's mind. You might imagine it. But she had long pondered, undoubtedly, when this day might come. She had been warned about it. We'll consider that a bit. We read it in Simeon's prophecy. Maybe she waited for it with a measure of anxiousness all her life. When will this day come? But here it is, and the sword that would pierce her own soul, even as her son was pierced. And you think of who her son was. This child who was unlike any man, born to men, conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in her womb, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity incarnated on the earth. But now, here he is, the fruit of her womb cruelly crucified, the Son that she had swaddled and laid to rest in the manger, was now hoisted brutally on that Roman instrument of torture by barbaric men. Her hands had been so tender, and here he is roughly put upon that cross. Her son, whose brow she had so tenderly kissed, even from a young age, had had a crown of thorns, cruelly screwed upon his head, bleeding viciously. I was recently with a, a mother who was playing with her infant child, and you see her play with the hands, as many of us have played with the hands of our children. And you think of Mary having played with the hands so tenderly of her son, and here his hands are pierced barbarically and nailed and fastened to that cross. And what goes on in her mind as she thinks on these things, these hands that had blessed so many, that had done nothing but minister and heal, now pierced with spikes, her son, who had never shown hatred to men, but only love and mercy, surrounded and reviled by cruel men, who seemed, it must have seemed to Mary and any really godly onlooker, these men must have seemed, seemed as ravenous beasts seeking to consume the Lord. Consider how they are described by the Psalm of the Cross, the 22nd. But thou art he, this is Christ's word, but thou art he uh, that took me out of the womb, thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. And here she is. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped 
upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. And you think of the scene, cruel thieves, wicked men mocking him, soldiers reviling him, religious leaders spitting at him. They're as animals before the Lord, well described as bulls and lions, gaping at the Redeemer as a ravenous lion or bear. All this, and his mother, that the Redeemer sings of in the 22nd Psalm, stands by, stood by, stood by that cross. Now, I do not know that any mother here could stand by and watch their son, who is a sinner, unlike Mary's son, treated in such a cruel and terrible way. It's incredible to read that she stood, yet she stood by. She did not wail. She did not shriek. She did not fall down and beat her breasts. Even though her soul was being pierced with many sorrows as sharp as a sword, the reason has to be that Mary had long pondered why her son was born. You read it in Luke 2. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. This is Simeon. According to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother, that is Mary, marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against, yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So here is the glory of Israel. Mary is beholding him, the light of the Gentiles, who was set for the fall, that is the damnation of many, but also the rising again of many, that is the salvation of many, and a sign that shall be spoken against, as you see here. Surely all of that she had long pondered before she saw her son come to the cross, But we do know that in view of this agony and suffering of her son, a sword pierced her own soul as Simeon prophesied. So we are called, right, to remember and call her the most blessed of all women, the mother of our Lord, who was willing not only to submit to the Lord's will to uh, give birth to the Redeemer, but also willingly had her soul pierced when her son would suffer for the sake of sinners. Now, even as we call her that most blessed of women, it seems such a tragedy, isn't it? That because of Rome's um, idolatry, Mariolatry, we have to always caveat these things. I wish we did not have to. But we must remember she's no co-redemptrix there standing by. In fact, she will be gone before the Lord faces the wrath of God. Mary would hate and despise the idea that she's called a co-redemptrix. No, her son bore all of our burdens, and hers too on the cross. We'll see that in the third heading. Her soul being pierced is really a maybe a more intense sensation than uh, what your soul, believer, is perhaps feeling right now as you think about your Lord's sufferings for your sake. Our soul is wounded, isn't it, when we think of what our Lord suffered for our sake. Her soul was pierced more than ours, undoubtedly as his mother, but her sufferings do not save us. Christ's sufferings save us. Your sufferings don't save you. Christ's sufferings save you. Let's never forget that. All glory goes to the Lord Jesus for what he suffered for our sake. She, however, did suffer great pain. You know, you think of this. For, four, for 33 years, she had known him. She had loved him. She had raised him to see him in a way that nobody else had seen, a man like, uh, unlike any other man, God incarnate, the Holy One of Israel, perfect and sinless, pure love. You know, what mother, even as you think about this, women, what mother has ever been so loved as this mother has been by this child? None has been. She had no controversy with her son. This was the best child that ever could be the most gracious, the most kind, the most loving. Even that episode we read of at the temple when Christ was 12, that first time perhaps she felt a pang of sorrow in her soul of losing her son. Where has he gone? 
and she feels that pang of sorrow, it was not because of his disobedience, but rather obedience to God. Her son had never once caused a thing, uh, caused a matter of grief to her in sinning. Not once, unlike our children, and unlike us, to our parents. Not once did this child ever cause grief through sin. The grief she had ever felt concerning her boy was not because of his disobedience, but rather what his obedience to the Lord would cost him. Her blessed son that she bore, that she nursed, that she raised, here he is as she stands by, now raised upon a cross. And think of a mother thinking of her son described in Isaiah 52. As many were astonied at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Here is Jesus, her son, and his form is unrecognizable, unrecognizable due to the brutality upon him. His back, as you know, plowed by Rome's cruel plowers, his face bruised and bloody, his visage more than any other man's, the scripture says. How he loved his people. How he loves his people. But how he loved his people in that demonstration then to undertake all this for our sake. But the sight of it would have crushed any good-hearted mother. Yet divine strength and grace was given to Mary by God that she could stand. Those years of meditations upon the word of God had strengthened her soul. Just as years, let me give you an application here. Just as years of meditation upon the word of God will strengthen your soul as well. That you can stand in your greatest trial. That divine grace would be given you and me too in our trials. Her meditations on the word had shown her that her son must endure this to the end. That he had come as Simeon had prophesied, for the salvation of many. And this is the appointed means, the slaying of the Lamb of God for the salvation of the world. And the thing is, her son is that Lamb of God, given by God for the salvation of the world. No woman has ever suffered like she had, yet no woman had been given such grace to not only see the Savior enter life, but also see him enter death. But as we consider Mary's own sight of the Savior, let us make it our own. Let us make it our own that we would see Christ as though evidently crucified among us. Galatians 3.1 Let the eyes of faith see your sweet Savior, holy, harmless, and blameless, crucified, crucified unjustly. Here is the just greatly suffering for the unjust who are you and me. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But how does God commend his love for us? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love you behold on the tree. Here is God's son before us in the word of God now, suffering not for the righteous, but the unrighteous, because God loves the unrighteous sinner who is found in Christ. And so God gives up his own son to cruel men and to his own wrath in a demonstration of his love for you and for me. Look at the Savior, even as Mary beheld him, and see the love of God. When you see the tokens uh, here at the Lord's Supper, see the love of God as Christ is broken for us, as Christ is poured out for us, the just suffering for the unjust the one who kept all the laws of God perfectly, suffering for all of us who eviscerate them totally. That is, that is what is in view here in the sufferings of Christ, the just suffering for the unjust. Remember how many were astonished at him that his form was beyond recognition as you come to the bread. And remember why it is for our salvation. When the wine is poured out, recall how his blood would pour out from his side to wash us in it, that we would be clean in him. By faith, 
When you come to the sacrament, you see the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And what is the commandment? Take him. Take him. Take him for yourself. He is worthy to be believed on. He is worthy to be cherished. He is worthy to be adored. Take him. Chief of sinners, take him. He stands in the place of the chief of sinners there on the cross, brutally receiving what the chief of sinners deserves. You see such great agony, such great pain, because he can atone for the greatest and worst of all men or women. So the chief of sinners has their warrant to take him. You deserve, and I deserve too, what he endured. Take him, and you will never suffer what he did. He took hell, so that you who believe may have paradise. Take him today, receive him by faith if you have not yet. Believe on him, and thou shalt be saved. Well, as great as his sufferings were, and we'll consider that next communion, Lord willing, more. That's only half the equation. He also had to obey the law of God so that in exchange for our unrighteousness, we who believe can have a record of perfect righteousness before the Lord that we may be called by the name, the Lord our righteousness. So before he suffered God's wrath, there was one last action for him to perform, one last keeping of the law to be done to win us a perfect righteousness, which we'll consider as our second meditation Christ's keeping of the law. <clears throat> well, as you know, Christ's 11 disciples had fled when he was taken. Even Peter, who said he would die for the Lord and would never deny him. Peter, nowhere here at the cross in our Lord's greatest trial. Yet one of the 11 had returned. One of the eleven had come to the Lord's cross. The text says there was the disciple standing by whom he loved. And you know, I trust this is the Apostle John. Fitting that this disciple of them all who once sweetly leaned on our Lord's bosom would be of all the disciples, the singular one to return to his side at his cross. Willing to be associated with the Redeemer in his hour of shame, willing to be reviled with Christ when others would not be found there. Let me just say, before we move on, may we all be as this disciple, willing to suffer the reproach of Christ rather than Peter at his lowest. Now, we know the man greatly repented of his sin, but let's consider Peter at his lowest when he, even before a young woman, a young girl, would deny the Lord, much less a fierce man. Let us not be like that. Let us be constant with the Lord, even if we suffer reproach for his sake. Well, from his cross then, when our Savior saw his mother and his dis a beloved disciple before him, he looked to Mary and said, Woman, behold thy son. Meaning, not behold me, but behold John. Because then he also said to John, Behold thy mother. Children, what was he doing in this? He was committing his mother to his disciples' care. That's what he was doing in these final hours. John understood full well what Christ would have him do. For our text says, from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. At this time, evidently, children, Joseph had passed away and Mary was a widow. Mary was a widow and Christ who we know as her eldest son, uh, to him was given charge of her for the one who bore him. And so, children, what commandment was our Lord keeping on the cross? It's the fifth commandment, isn't it? Honor thy father and thy mother. Christ is keeping the law of God, even on the cross. Isn't that an astonishing thing to see when so many of us would retreat away from any thought of obedience to the Lord? And let me just say, if he had not done so at this time, he would not be able to save us. He would not be able to save us because he would not have kept all the righteous requirements of the law of God. And so he could not be a spotless sacrifice as he would after this hour, the sixth hour approaches. He would not be a fitting Holocaust offering to God when the earth turned as blackness and the words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, would come as the fourth saying from his holy lips. 
But it's also requisite, as I have said, for you who are saved to have a perfect righteousness to enter heaven. You remember in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Why? That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The righteous requirement of the law must be fulfilled, Christian. And we do not do it, God knows, so he sends his son, not only to condemn our sin in him, but also to earn us a righteousness that we can possess and receive by faith alone. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, we hear that Christ has made righteousness for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, which I already read, we hear that we are made the righteousness of God in him. In Jeremiah, as we have heard, he is the Lord, our righteousness. And children, the mechanism is simply this. When a sinner puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to them such that his righteousness is counted as theirs. And it is blessedly received purely and only by faith in Christ. What a glorious thing that is. <coughs> Even children, as you consider this one fact, that how rare it is for you to honor your own father and mother. And here is Christ on the tree before you, isn't he? Keeping that commandment. You fail, I've failed many times. And so to look upon this scene then is to really be filled and warmed with the love of God. To see here is Christ doing what I do not do and is willing to give that to me if I will receive it by faith. You see, at the cross, we often focus on Christ atoning for our sin, but we often neglect, even at the cross, though the third saying points us in this direction, Christ's perfect righteousness for us. <clears throat> Keeping here, especially the fifth commandment, to utter an exquisite perfection. In fact, perhaps think of his mother as a widow. And maybe you're thinking of the book of James. Aren't you? What is required for true religion? Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. James 1.27. Pure religion. You need it accounted to you, don't you? I need it accounted to me. Here it is in Christ. This is pure religion incarnated. Here you find one who is uh, visiting the fatherless and widows in their affliction, keeping himself unspotted from the world. In fact, children, when you consider Proverbs twenty three twenty two, despise not thy mother when she is old. You see that here in Christ, don't you? To not despise his mother, but to care for her. Now, maybe this is a bit personal for you. Maybe some of you have despised your mother when she is old, and maybe she even passed away before you had a chance to reconcile with her. And you maybe were converted after she had passed away and it, it torments you, it plagues your, your heart and mind. Uh, I never got a chance. And what will God do with that? What will God do with that? Yet here you find Christ's righteousness covering your own unrighteousness. He did not despise his own mother and that is credited and that is accounted to you by faith. And in every way, every deficiency, every defect in our life, we find the remedy here in Christ. And as you look on the scene then, is there anyone, as you look at what Christ is doing, even in his misery, is there anyone who can accuse Christ of not having a perfect righteousness? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Give glory to God for that. But there's a secondary glory in that, isn't there? Because if he is your righteousness, who can accuse you? Who can accuse me that we do not have a perfect and spotless righteousness? The devil certainly can't. Not even you yourself can accuse yourself before God. No, Christ is the Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 6, and as you read in Jeremiah 33, 16. By faith, you must believe that Jesus Christ has impeccably kept every commandment for your sake. 
impeccably so. Heart, mind, affection, will, all of it, his whole soul, and then working outward in action like here on the cross. He who gave the law became subject to it for the salvation of his people. And here he is fulfilling its demands. Here is the lawgiver on the cross under his law, as we heard last week, to magnify the law and make it honorable. You see here the heart of the law of God as well, don't you? It's a law of love. Is there not compassion in the law of God? Is there not love here to take care of this poor widow, to bind her and join her to a disciple that he be counted as her own son? Children, the fifth commandment is compassionate. As all the commandments of God are, you are not to revile them and you're not to despise them. This past week, in fact, you may have searched your heart as you were preparing for the supper and you may have been tempted to despise the commandments as you saw how short you fell. And me too, by the way, how far short you fall of them. But do not despise the commandments. They're good, they're holy, they're just. It is a law of love. You know, we love our observation of Christ, don't we, throughout the Gospels. Why is that? Is it not that he was the embodiment of the commandments? Commandments being summarized by love thy God and love thy neighbor. And that's what we love and adore about Christ. We see his love poured out to many. Beloved, the problem is not us, uh, is not the commandments. The problem is us. We are sinners. But here we see Christ suffering for sinners and to give sinners righteousness. So let him magnify his law to you and make it honorable. We'll talk about that perhaps at the table some more. Now, you know, you think about John now being given Mary. And sometimes, sad to say, in our society, we often think of taking care of the elderly as a burden, don't we? And you might be tempted to think here that then John is receiving a burden from the Lord. But he's not. He's not. He's receiving a blessing. He's receiving a blessing. Uh, this caring of Mary is not an added burden from the Lord to the apostle. In many ways, you think of this, especially with Mary, what a great joy it is for the disciple that Jesus loved to care for his mother, to care for his own mother. That's an honor to be chosen to serve the Lord in this way. And it was really, what was it that gave him this duty? It was his love for his Redeemer that caused him to be chosen in this way, isn't it? His love being shown forth and standing forth there with Mary before the cross when all others had fled. Let me just say, here's a quick observation. If you want to serve the Lord, love him. Love him. Love the Lord thy God. And you will find that he chooses to give you sweet duties. He will entrust you with sweet duties near and dear to his own heart. You can hardly think of things greater upon his heart as far as persons are concerned than the care of his mother at this point. And he entrusts it to the disciple that loved him so dearly. What a reward it was as well for John to have Mary spend the rest of her life with him. You think about this one that loved Jesus so much now having a chance to speak with Mary. What was he like as a child? What was he like when others mocked him as a child? What, what was his response to that? When they mocked even you, Mary? Oh, yes, surely you were conceived, right, by the power of the Holy Ghost. What was he like in all those ways? What was he like? What were the questions? What was the doctrine he taught at the temple when he was 12? How did he show you and Joseph so much love? What does he say to the priests even at a young age? Here you learn as well that those who love the Lord long to learn of the Lord and will be given that knowledge if they seek it. And they will be given greater knowledge of Christ, not from Mary, but from the scripture. <clears throat> so love the Lord <coughs> and see these sweet things. But let us turn our attention back to the cross as we've gone a little afar field from it. And I want you to notice just how greatly the Lord cares for his people. Even with his life draining, ebbing away in his suffering and in his misery, pain in every fiber of his being, his back, of course, we know was torn apart. His face was pummeled, his brow bloodied, 
piercing pain through his pierced hands, slowly suffocating, even in all that, how selfless the Lord is. He doesn't retreat into himself, right? Consumed with his own agony. He sees those in need and he deals tenderly with them. He deals with them kindly and cares for them. And I want you to understand this, Christian, how attentive the Lord is to you and to your needs. If there he is on the cross in suffering, paying complete attention on those who have need of his ministry, how about now when he is crowned in heaven, overseeing and ruling over all things? Does he not care for the slightest detail of your life? Here he is in misery, paying attention to the needs of the Christian. Can you say that any need of yours is unnoticed and uncared for? No. When you come then to the Lord's table, you need to see here then a token of the Lord's care and compassion for you that he has taken note of what you truly need. And he is giving himself for you for what you truly need. That when we come to the table, we see the active care of the Lord for his people, that he has not just gone away to heaven and says, fine, you find a wake up to me someday. No, but he comes down to us. He ministers to us. He takes note of uh, what our needs are, what our weaknesses are, and he has come to give us grace for all of it. When the wine warms your heart, feel that by faith as the love of Christ, the present love of Christ for you. Not a bare memorial, but the present love of Christ. When the bread comforts, gives you some comfort in your mouth, by faith receive it as the comfort of Christ, giving himself for you today. Well, that comfort will serve as the segue into our final meditation, Christ's loss of all comfort. In order to give us comfort, he must have none for himself. Verse 27 says, from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. That very hour, his family, his friend, his disciple at the cross would no longer be there. That very hour, John took Mary with him into his own home to care for her as the Savior would have him. Undoubtedly, there's an element here of shielding her from what may transpire next because it was almost the sixth hour And there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. That is what would begin at the sixth hour, Luke 23, and Mark's gospel records that as well. And as you know, that is when the power of God's wrath would be completely and entirely focused upon one man, our Lord Jesus Christ. In that time, during that time, the fourth word of the cross would be uttered to us, perhaps the most heart-wrenching and soul-crushing words, my God, my God, Why hast thou forsaken me? Where we see the Savior taking the wrath of God Almighty on his soul for our sin. And perhaps Christ intends for John to remove Mary from this tragic scene, to keep the sword that pierced her own soul from completely eviscerating her in the view of it. But there was actually another reason, a greater reason, for Mary and John having to depart from the scene which is that Christ must face the wrath of God all alone, all alone, all by himself, with no comforters to comfort him, that he would have to face God on his own. None must lend him any strength, and none could be his companion in that. He must face it all alone, just as those in hell, as we heard, are in what is called outer darkness, as though they're in solitary confinement as it's all them and the wrath of God. He would have to face the fury and wrath and power of God against himself. He would have to take it all himself. He who gave comfort to his mother would have no comfort in the next three hours as he paid for our sin. You know, children, in one level, you might think this is oh so terribly unjust, that he who is perfectly loving, so righteous, would be given absolutely no comfort at all, but instead cried out to God, why hast thou forsaken me, O God? As his soul was burning up with God's anger and wrath for my sin and yours too, believer. 
Yet he did it, and he must do it, in order to suffer what you and I deserve in our place. It seems unjust, but it's the only way that God may be just and the justifier of them that have faith in him. It's the only way he must endure what the sinner deserves to endure. And so he must do it all by himself. And he must have zero comfort from God in that time and from man too. Christ willingly and freely for the joy set before him suffered unspeakably in ways that you and I, Christian, will never know. Praise God for that. That you might have peace with God through him. What a selfless savior, Christian, who gives and gives and gives of himself for sinners. And so at the table, you look on these elements and see a savior willingly giving himself for sinners, even the chief. See the savior even who was once scorned and mocked because he dined with sinners and see that he dines with sinners still. And he suffered for them in unspeakable ways. And he will commune and dine with you too, sinner, who comes by faith here at this table. And so I would say, if you have professed faith in the Lord, you need to come to your Lord if there is not some unrepentant sin keeping you here from the table. You need to come and take of the bread of life. You need to come and take of the blood that washes away every sin. You need to come and partake of Christ, the Lord, your righteousness, Christian. And you need to say, as you think about not just the things that you have done sinfully, but also the things that you have left undone, and even those things that at one point perhaps you have boasted in that you have done. You need to say at the table what the apostle said, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own what? Righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. That I may know him. We come to know him. We come to throw away all of our righteousnesses, which are as filthy rags and as ours dung, that we may know the righteousness of Christ and be found in him. Your goodness, such as it is, as you walk to the table, throw it all away. And say, dung, it's all as dung compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Run from self-righteousness, flee from it, run to the table with love and faith and joy and run to Christ's righteousness. The reason that we often falter on our way to the table is we're still in some way looking on our own righteousness and not on Christ. And anyone who truly looks on their own righteousness is going to see at the very best Dung. So you need to come looking at his. Remember, as we remember Jeremiah 33, right? You remember the Lord our righteousness, but I'll have you remember what preceded that. In view of all that the Lord would do for us, we are to fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that the Lord has procured for us in Christ. That is how we come to the table. His goodness so great and all that he has procured for us in Christ so astonishing that we tremble for his goodness. If we're in Christ, we're not going to come here trembling about his wrath. That's for you outside of Christ. But for us, we come trembling in his goodness. That Christ has procured for us the washing away of our sins and a perfect spotless righteousness. Sinners like us do not deserve all this goodness, and yet goodness and mercy we have received. Let us taste then and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. And I'll just remind you that the Savior did not remain dead in the grave. We haven't come to that text yet, but let us remind ourselves of it. 
We do not commune with a dead man here at the table, but one who is alive, risen at God's right hand. We commune with the living God-man. Christ is dead and raised for us. Where he is in paradise, you will be too, Christian. So let this table as well serve as a, a preview of paradise. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. This is a foretaste of paradise, communing with the Lord, isn't it? It's a true communion with Christ if we come by faith. Let this be a preview of the second word on the cross. Today, let us be with Christ in paradise as we come. Let us in love and in faith come to the table, seeing Jesus by faith and tasting a bit of paradise that when we leave this table, the, the thought of it, the sensation of it, the ministry to our soul in it would have us leaving saying, I don't desire this present world. I desire to be where thou art, O Jesus. May these thoughts and meditations lift our heart to the Lord and prepare us for the supper. Amen. Let us arise for prayer if able. O Lord, our God, how thankful we are for the Lord, our righteousness. Help us, O Lord, to see the, the Lord Jesus Christ as our perfect, and complete Redeemer. Help us to give glory to God for all that he has done, not just suffering for us, but also living for us, not just dying for us. And so, Father, as we come and make our preparations for the table, we pray, Lord, that this word would root itself into our heart and that we would find all our sufficiency in Christ, that we would run away from both our sins and our good deeds, Put them in that one pile together, instead fleeing to Jesus and sweetly embracing him, even as we will shortly at the table. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.